Welcome to the New Books Network. January 6th, 2021 is an experience that every person will remember where they were when they watched the siege of the U.S. Capitol unfold. For Dr. Bradley Onishi, the question that ran through his mind while watching the events was, would I have been there had I not left evangelicalism? It rang through his mind. In the months after January 6th, Onishi wrote the new book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next, for release on January 3rd, 2023. The book weaves together Onishi's own life experiences and the history of the rise of the tide of white Christian nationalism in the United States to create an informative, emotive, and, to me, jarring depiction of the United States at this point in the country's history. You can find all of his work at bradonishi.com. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation. Dr. Bradley Onishi, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I mean, uh, it's a true pleasure. And I know that's what people have to say on podcasts, but I just want to stop. And I know you want to <laughs> say a bunch of stuff, but I need to say yeah. this is a true honor to be here and what you've created on this show and what you've done as a podcaster, everybody should see as extraordinary because um, it's it's really it's really pretty amazing platform. And so thanks for having me. I, I appreciate that. And I do want to start off uh, with podcasting. I want to know about your podcast too, because, you know, I started doing my podcast, um, in 2017 and did that for a long time. And then I saw other ones pop up like in the field of like religious studies. And I love it when they pop up because I have this philosophy about podcasting in this like niche field that we all do better when we all do better. Do you know what I mean? And I love the, like the camaraderie and the unity between the different podcasts with like within this field. And so I'm a big fan of straight white American Jesus. And, you know, let's just start there. Um, I want to know the origin story of straight white American Jesus, because podcasting is just something that I love talking about. So tell me about this project and like everything that you want to share about it, because I want everybody to know about this show. So 2018, uh, working at Skidmore College. So near near your kind of, you know, at least in your region there in New York. Right. And um, I had a friend over uh, in. Western Mass. And so we'd known each other for a long time, going back to grad school days. Both of us were ex-evangelical ministers. So we, mm. we have a long and deep history with evangelicalism and conservative Christianity. Now we're both religious studies professors. And just like everybody in the heart of the Trump years, trying to figure out ways to contribute, to uh, help people understand, help people kind of find ways to maneuver through what felt like wreckage, and so we got together and said, look, let's just start a show. And I had the, I had it in my head. I was like, I want to call the show Straight White American Jesus because I want to explain to people why so many Americans think that Jesus is a straight white guy who was born <laughs> here, uh, speaks English, uh, you know, probably uh, eats at Applebee's. Surfer. And, uh, He's a surfer. You know, yeah. You know, just whatever it is. And why then Donald Trump and people like him are seen as kind of uh, – emanations of this this American Jesus. And so we did that. We had no idea what we were doing. And we also just didn't know if anyone would listen. There's so many great people and and great voices out there. But 
what we felt like we could bring to the table was an insider scholar kind of bifocal lens. We lived it. We can tell you, we speak fluent evangelical. Like you're yeah. not going to, you know, I don't have to conjugate evangelical verbs in my head. I have no accent. I have no, like, I, I speak that better than anyone. And so does Dan, my co-host. We both went to seminary. We both studied theology. We both were ministers. But we also now study religion historically and sociologically and through political theory and social theory. So we can also kind of have conversations that really get into that. So, uh, you know, just like you, we do it every week. We, we got 350 episodes now. And we wow. just, we're really, you know, you, we're, where you have a kind of focus on just uh, these amazing books and the humanities that pop up, we're really um, focused on Christian nationalism, the religious right, and generally religion and politics in the United States. Amazing. Okay, so let's go back to that that origin story then of finding yourself in the evangelical Christian world, because where you have wound up compared to where you began, like that, the stories of that in the book are so compelling, and you're just such a personable speaker. So I kind of want to hear the the story from your own mouth while I got you. Sure. Thanks for asking that, Greg. I, so I'm 14 and I'm in a non-religious home. My dad's a Japanese American guy from Maui. My mom's a white woman from Missouri. Boat mom's nominally Christian, dad's nominally Buddhist, kind of decided to leave religion out of the, the marriage, I guess, in order to try to have a happy home. Didn't work. They got divorced anyway. Um, and so at 14, I'm like a punk kid getting in trouble. Uh, I'm get suspended from school, sex, drugs, rock and roll kind of stuff. And my then girlfriend invites me to the the youth group at church. And it's, you know, look, it's Wednesday night. There was no other way I was going to convince mom to let me see my girlfriend on, on a Wednesday night when I was yeah. 14. So if she invites you to church and you're like, mom, I'm going to go to a Bible study. I think, you know, we should give Jesus a chance. I think I need yeah. him in my life. Mom's not going to say no. So she, of course, is like, I'll take you right now. Who do you, well, let's go. And uh, get there. And instead of like boring Ned Flanders guys who are, you know, Heidi Ho neighbor, it's uh cool young leader dudes with tattoos and guitars. And they, they play in Christian punk bands and they want to like, you know, uh, talk to me about surfing. And I'm like, Whoa, this is pretty cool. And then I learned about Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and heaven. And I was a really angsty kid, you know, kind of portending a, a professorial life. And I just was always wondering about the meaning of life. So anyway, long story short, very quickly, um, the girlfriend dumped me, but I, I kept going. I mean, I was, I became the kid that went to church anytime it was open, whether that was youth group, yeah. Bible study, Sundays, retreats, boys, you know, uh, summer camp, you know, whatever was up by the time I'm 18, I'm in ministry. By the time I'm 20, I'm married and I'm a full-time minister at the mega church and uh, in charge of 200 kids. Uh, so that's, you know, I couldn't even buy a beer at that point, but it was was doing all that. Wow. Okay. So, okay. First of all, who are your favorite Christian punk bands <laughs> from back in the day? So we we had, I was right there for the MXPX oh, Renaissance. Yeah. I mean, so yep. those guys were everywhere. And then I'm from Southern California. So we had a lot of Five Iron Frenzy, yep. uh, shout out to them if they're listening, and uh, a lot of OC Supertones, the ska band. You know, oh, there's a yeah. lot. There's a lot of ska around. That was. It's very embarrassing now. Um, there was later on. There was like POD. There was Stave Saker. Yeah. Um, there was uh, Third Day. No, 
third day. Yeah. Third day. Um, I was going to say green day, which is obviously not a Christian band. So anyway, those, those are the ones that really like, those were our, those were our jam. Sixpence none the richer was in there. Anyway. Nice. Did you listen to the undecided from oh. Winnipeg, Manitoba? I, I remember them. Yep. Loved the undecided. Um, yeah. And so, gosh, who, there were so many, I love it. Um, okay. So anyway, what denomination did you kind of like find yourself in? Can you like define the basics of like what it is that you found yourself in and kind of tell the audience like what the exact scenario and context of your practice was at that time? So this is going to be a wild ride, everybody. So buckle up. Um, yes. So I come from North Orange County. So kind of on the border of LA County going into what y'all imagine is like the real OC. And so my town is the town where Richard Nixon was born. Mm -hmm. Um, and in a very strange turn of events, that part of Southern California is full of Quakers, mm. full of, uh, you know, society of friends, people. So there's two churches in the town I grew up in, and it's not a big town that are Quaker and have at, at least at one time had over 2000 people. Um, now what happened in that, those churches though, is you take all that cool stuff about being Quaker, uh, egalitarianism, silence. A commitment to social justice, abolitionism, you know, no, no hierarchy, no patriarchy. And you run all that through the kind of generic evangelical cheese grater. And at the end, you get something that looks like a wannabe Rick Warren church. And so hmm. we were a name Quaker, but you know, one of the things that happened to me when I got to seminary is like, I started to look around and think all that cool stuff that is, you know, inherited from from the society of friends we don't do any of it it just seems mm. like we want to just be want to be mega church people and that's that's part of what kind of unraveled everything for me so um yeah so that's that's the basic outline and you were super intense in like school and in public and like you were like kind of like one of those people that's kind of like you know if a, if a video would pop up today of like people like saying things like on a on a plane or outside of like you know sporting events like that would be you right I, I, I'm an oldest, I'm the oldest brother of three. And I, I kind of just do everything so hard and so extreme that I ruin it. And so that definitely happened with being a Christian. I, you know, I used to, when I was 13 and 14, I used to ask my mom to, to take us, my, my friends and I to the movies. And then we wouldn't go to the movies. We would go around the back and do stupid teenage stuff. But when I converted, I would still go to the movies, but instead of going into the movies or going behind the movie theater to do teenage stuff, I would stand in front of the movie theater. And when people my age came out, I would ask them if they had met Jesus and if they knew they were going to uh, spend their eternal, uh, you know, eternity. Uh, at school, I led a Bible study. So I would sit on a planter at school and and host a Bible study and some people would come. I'd walk around with tracks at school, um, the beach boardwalk, uh, any of those places. Uh, some people might remember see you at the pole. It's a once a year event where teenagers gather to pray for the country and this kind of stuff. And they do that at their school flagpole. Yeah. I, that wasn't good enough for me just because I ruin everything. And so <laughs> I, I, I was like, I'm going to do see you at the pole every Friday and I'll yeah. invite people. And usually it was just me. So I'd just go stand out there on a Friday at my public school and pray and People would walk by me like, what's this guy doing? And there you go. Uh, it, yeah. It's amazing that you brought that up because I was literally reading that portion of the chapter like 30 minutes ago. Um, I love it. So what was your, so you were obviously extremely committed, extremely devoted, very much into bringing other people into the fold. Why did you stop? Tell me about your journey out. 
you know, I, I think it's in some ways a, a very common story of people who are now ex-evangelicals, ex-LDS, ex-Catholics, in the sense that what you'll hear from, from certain church people is, oh, you, you never cared in the first place. You were never saved in the first place. And what a lot of us respond with is, look, I, I'm not the never were. I'm not the one who was never in. I'm the I'm the done. Like I gave mm. everything I had, including my brain. And when my brain kicked in in college and then in seminary, and I started learning theology and history and philosophy, I started to think through all the things that seemed important to us, whether that was abortion, whether that was, you know, not having sex before marriage, whether that was why I had to vote Republican, no matter what, uh, commitments to war. I mean, you know, Greg, we're, we're a Quaker church. Mm -hmm. I go to a prayer meeting every Tuesday and I can tell you that every Tuesday we were asked by the, you know, people in the congregation to pray for the military, pray for the police. Yeah. And we never once in seven years prayed for peace. And, you know, after a while you start, you know, you read enough books and you do enough thinking and you're like, this is weird. And then you, you start tracing your history and you, you start doing your, your lessons in, in American politics and all kinds of stuff, biblical studies. And, you know, they say you're, you're, if you let your head, you know, get to get too uh, strong and it, it'll lead your heart away from God. And I'm not sure that happened, but it certainly led me away from the American evangelicalism that I was brought into because mm. it just became no longer tenable for me. Yeah. And you got out of the country. You went to, they went to the UK. I went to Oxford, uh, which I had no business being at and can, uh, <laughs> I, I can go into, I can go into an hour long uh, explanation as to why I had no business being there, getting a master's degree, but I, I was. And uh, you know, in some ways that was really hard because I moved I moved there in 2005 straight from ministry. So I had never had another job as an adult um, after high school other than being a minister. I had been married by that time for four and a half years yeah, and I'd never left the country. So here I am in a thousand year old city at a thousand year old university where John Locke and Dun Scotus went and, uh, you know, away from home. Uh, anonymous. There's no church ladies at the grocery store kind of watching me. There's no youth group parents wanting to shake my hand when I, when I go to the, you know, the baseball field. And very quickly, my, my wife and I decided to get divorced. It was just, you know, we'd been together since we were 14 and it was yeah. just not, not you're different when you're 24 than 14. And very soon I was like, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore when it came to church. And so my life changed dramatically to say the least. Wow. Amazing. Okay. So then you go on to a career as a professor, but then we, we shoot forward, we careen into the future to the present day, and you have a brand new book coming out. Seriously. One of the most interesting books that I've come across in some time. Like I'm loving this book so much. The book is called preparing for war and it opens on January 6th, 2022. And you know, something about this this opening uh captured my attention because you talk about feeling buoyant during the transition months after Joe Biden wins the election over Donald Trump in 2020, but I felt the complete opposite. I was I felt horrible the entire transition because I felt something was going to happen and it absolutely did. Um, and so tell me about your experience on January 6th, 2021, and your processing of these events, because you saw it in a way that a lot of people can't. 
Yeah, you know, so that if people remember, that was, you know, you woke up on January 6th and Warnock and Ossoff had won their Senate seats in Georgia, right? So you wake up and you're like, whoa, the Senate is blue by the slimmest of margins. The yeah. House is blue. Biden's going to take office. There's a chance here that this country can find a way to undo the regressive uh, actions of, of the previous administration. So that morning I wake up, I go surfing. Uh, it's like freezing, at least for my standards, it's like 39 degrees. When I get out of the car, the water's like, you know, I know feel free to laugh at me. Um, yeah. Uh, it's like 47 degrees in the water, but I'm just like, so happy. Cause I'm in the water just thinking, wow, like things could really change in, in some minor positive way. I get out of the water. I take a selfie. There's like a, you know, it's like golden hour, uh, dude, sunrise. I saw that picture. I remember yeah. the picture. It's just like, you know, and I, I look back at it now and I'm like kind of smiling and happy and the whole way home. I'm like, oh, wow. And then as soon as I get home, you know, you, you open the computer <laughs> and here we are and I'm watching it. And, you know, once I get over the initial shock, you start to notice all the Christian symbols, all the Christian symbols. And very quickly, Peter Manso, the the American. He's amazing. Curator. Yeah. Great guy. You know, is, is using hashtag capital siege religion. And he's doing so to chronicle all the ways that, you know, Christian and other symbols are showing up. And you start to kind of realize that uh, this was a religious crusade in many, many ways. And then for me, my brain kicks in and is like, maybe I would have been there. Like oh, if man. I, you know, if I don't leave, it, am I going to be there? And I, you know, and I found out later there, there were people from my hometown who were there from my church. And there you go. Wow. Okay. So. We all remember these days, everybody who in the country was paying attention to that saw it and experienced it in their own ways, and they've continued to process it in like the almost two years since then. Um, tell me about the the formulation of how this book comes together, preparing for how you process with the events of January 6th as and, and, and like weave it into your own personal story. Tell me how you begin to process this story in order to start to like bring this book, Preparing for War, together. You know, I really wanted to do two things. So I there are so many books out there about uh, how and why Trump won the evangelical vote, how and why conservative Christians, whether they be Catholic or, or Protestant or LDS or others, have really uh, become extremist when it comes to their politics over the last five years or 10 years, et cetera. A lot of those are done by amazing journalists who who haven't really lived it, but are in the weeds, reporting, finding sources, right? And many of them are my friends and colleagues, you know, Catherine Stewart's book, The Power Worshippers, and Nelson's book, Shadow Network, Sarah Posner's book, Unholy, uh, and so many others. There's another genre out there, which is the kind of ex-evangelical, ex ex-Catholic, ex-Mormon memoir that really helps people kind of see like what, what it was like to live something like this tradition. Mm -hmm. I wanted to provide one that brought those two together and say, look, here's how I lived as an evangelical, and here's how I was trained to think of us as in a war, a spiritual battle for the country, and to also think that the country was headed towards an apocalyptic cliff if we didn't save it. And so what I do is I use my own experiences, and I, I kind of integrate those into what I think of as uh, a 60-year uh, process of preparing for war. And so I begin in the 1960s, could have started earlier, could have started way earlier. I know that. But the 60s to me represent a kind of counter-revolution where white Christians, patriarchal, native-born, the whole thing 
start to look around and think, all right, there's a feminist movement, there's a queer liberation movement, there's certainly a civil rights movement, there's immigration reform, uh, Loving Act passed uh, interracial marriages ago. We're losing our country. That was their response. Right. <laughs> and so that kicks in a, a generation's long uh, war to take back the country any way possible. And one of the, the conclusions I come to in, in, in one of the later chapters is, if that means martyring democracy, if democracy has to go in order to save the country for themselves, they'll do that. And they and and I can show you the receipts, and I can also show you how I was taught to think that way uh, in in my own experience. That chapter you're referring to, "Killing Democracy to Save the Nation," incredible, incredible chapter. I am loving that as well. Let's do a little bit of terminology, if that's okay with you. Um, I want to know about the terms evangelical and nationalist so that we can then bring together Christian nationalists. So I want to hear about these terms, kind of weave these together, because just because somebody's a nationalist doesn't mean they're an evangelical. Just because somebody's an evangelical doesn't mean they're, you know, a nationalist. Does that make sense? So I want to hear about these differentiations and then tie it together with Christian nationalist. Yeah, no. So I think evangelical is is a notoriously slippery term. Uh, if, if we have scholars of evangelicalism or fundamentalism or the history of Christianity, they're all going to have their own definitions and their own uh, emphasis. So uh, just start with that. But in my mind, I think if we're just going to give a basic uh, approach, evangelicals are people who will will tell you they take the Bible seriously. You're going to see places like Rochester Bible Church or Family Bible Church of Anaheim. And that's because they really think that the Bible is uh, either the inerrant or infallible word of God, that it's to be read as closely as you can to literally and to be understood as basically dropped from heaven and to be obeyed. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, uh, they have a sense in which um, apocalypse is really in a kind of important aspect of their thinking. And again, various and multidimensional. So sure. I, I'm sure that I'll get some emails and say, I, I missed this or didn't talk about that. But in, in my experience, the end of the world was overlaid onto everything politics, culture, elections, the VMA, MTV awards, all the way to the war in Iraq was about if we don't do something, the country will go will, will go away. And the world is getting more and more evil because uh, that people are falling away from God. Um, there's an emphasis too, and I think that this, this comes up uh, in, t in today's world in ways that uh, people should really understand that religion is an individual endeavor. It's something that you have between yourself and God. And it can be taken to such an extreme degree that one can be a Christian or an evangelical and not really even attend church because mm -hmm. things are so individualized that if you have a personal relationship with Jesus and you uh, you know are assured of that and can talk the talk in that way in 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 a manner that might really confuse some folks who aren't familiar with this, right? The kind of daily or weekly practices of religiosity um, are not necessarily uh, the proofs of your of your faith. And so there if, if I just give a very basic definition of an evangelical, they're individual, they're Bible centered, and they're usually apocalyptic. And then I think one more thing that's really important here is um, th they have a very kind of uh, energetic certainty. and and I know that sounds strange. What I mean by that is if you have that interpretation of the Bible and you think that the world is going to end, 
then there is no room for uh, for being tepid. You know, when I was growing up, the idea that you would kind of be a Catholic and go to mass once a week and, you know, uh, kind of do it that way made no sense to us. The idea yeah. that you would be, you know, a, a kind of religious person who went through the motions didn't make any sense in our mind because it was all or nothing. It was everything is at stake all the time. And I think right. that really helps people perhaps comprehend why the politics can ramp up and get so extreme so quickly. If you're living in that kind of world, that that world that says, I know the truth, I know the right way, I know what has to happen, and I'm committed to it, because if I don't, everything is going to go terribly, and everything is at stake, and everything that I care about will go away. You can see how we get to where we got throughout the Trump years, the Tea Party, and all that stuff. Yeah, okay, so bring in nationalists now. What is that term? And then how do we get to Christian nationalist? So a nationalist, in very broad terms, is somebody who uh, believes that their, you know, their country or their nation uh, is demands their their loyalty and uh, and and their uh, their service, and they believe that their allegiance and their uh, their priority should be to that nation. And so, okay. if I'm a if I'm an American nationalist, what I'm telling you is is look, I recognize that there are human beings in Pakistan and in France and in Thailand. I recognize that human beings exist all over the world. But my nation has a certain character, it has a certain set of virtues, it has a certain history, and as a people, that is my priority. The freedom, the identity, and the autonomy of my country, of my nation, is what I see as the the priority of my life and my allegiance. And so as a nationalist, anyone or anything or any state that encroaches on the identity, freedom, or autonomy of my nation is going to be seen, in my eyes, as an enemy. And it's something that should go away. Now, as a nationalist, it doesn't mean that I want to destroy all the other nations. It means I just think all the nations should take care of themselves and they mm-hmm. all have their self-interests and they all have their vested kind of uh, priorities. They all have their ways of life. Okay, great. Just leave me alone. And if you sure. get in my way or you 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 bump my shoulder, you step on my foot, then we'll have an issue. But otherwise, I'm going to tend to my nation. You go tend to yours. You can kind of see though how this starts to trickle out, right? If I start to think this way, then I start to, have the kind of language to say that those other nations do it that way. Well, those people over there do it right in that manner. Too many of those folks in our space, right? You can start to see how this turns into, right? Other strains of xenophobia or, uh, or, or, you know, other things that we can get into later, but anyway, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, what I want to know is like, how do researchers identify a Christian nationalist? Because like, if you go up to somebody and you say, Hey, what are you? They're not going to be like, hi, I'm John. I'm a Christian nationalist. Like, how do you like identify how many of like people are like this and fit this certain characteristics? Like, how do you find these people? So I think, you know, what, what I've tried to do in my work is, is take both uh, cues from sociologists and then also cues from history. So I think that, you know, Perry and Whitehead in their book, Taking America Back for God, uh, do us a great service for a number of reasons. One, is they show through data the ways that uh, Christian nationalism corresponds to certain uh, positions when it comes to immigration, when it comes to war, when it comes to uh, increasing diversity in the United States, when it comes to gender. But what they they do that really sticks out to me is they put Christian nationalism on a spectrum. And so in my view, if you say that this country was a country built for and by Christians, you are a Christian nationalist. 
Okay. Now that can, that can fall on a spectrum that could mean, yep. You know, I'm, I'm Betsy from, from Kansas city. I think the Puritans built the country. I think Christian people should be proud of that. And I think the country was, was built that way. And I, you know what, I, I I'm still more comfortable if we got a Christian president, I'm still more comfortable if my uh, local representative is a, is a Bible believing, you know, Presbyterian that, that, yeah, that makes me feel good. And yeah, I kind of think that that there's no problem if we say uh, the pledge of allegiance and one nation under God and our, our money says, in God, we trust, you know, those are good things. They're part of our heritage. Why would we get rid of that? Yeah. You know, you're over there. You want to be Buddhist. You're not bothering me. Look, I'm, I'm not coming out here trying to, 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 you know, persecute you, but I'm just kind of, uh, you know, more or less into this idea of a Christian nation. Uh, now that can turn into all the way in the other end of the spectrum, some, some instantiations that we're seeing now in, in various publications and various, uh, you know, various expressions, which says you should institutionalize your Christianity to the point that the Christian has, uh, I'm sorry, that the nation has a set of Christian laws, a set of Christian policies, and a set of Christian leaders and we should accept nothing less mm. that if there is a non-Christian in the White House, if there is a majority of non-Christians in the country, if there is a situation where people are no longer recognizing that this is a Christian nation by founding and by character and by virtue, then we need to fix that. And, and that can happen through elections. It could also not. It could also happen just by dint of force. And by dint of uh, us taking back the country any way possible, and we're seeing that kind of expression now. So, I think sociologically that that spectrum really helps me. Okay, and then I think historically what we see is that a Christian nationalist is often defined, and this is where the white comes in, because this is this is something that I think is 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 true of white folks uh, who are Christian nationalists is they often have a sense that the country used to be better. And this is why I started in the 1960s, because they mm. think that, you know, the 1960s led to chaos. Like when they see women's rights, queer liberation, civil rights movement, interracial marriage, women entering the workforce, no excuse divorce, uh, no fault divorce, uh, you know, Immigration Act bringing in people from Korea and from, from uh, you know, from uh, Ethiopia. They don't see progress and more representation and equal protection under the law for the trans person, for the gay couple, for the interracial couple. What they see is, you know, it used to be peaceful and now it's not. And everything's confusing. Everything, there's more than two choices. It's it's not just good or bad, right or wrong. Now it's pronouns and various identities mm. and you're part Filipino and part Mexican. I don't even... This is all, and it used to be better. It used to be simple. And I want to go back to that. And I feel like that's what we need. So that nostalgia is a huge driver uh, of, of Christian nationalism uh, in many pockets. You know, and we have that undercurrent for, for decades, okay? 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. But then we get to 2021, January 2021. And then the big lie comes in. And I want to know for you how crucial that big lie is. So say Trump came out the day after the election is like, oh, I lost. Everything's over. Things would you know, move into a normal transition. But then we have the big lie, which opens a window of opportunity. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. The way I think about the big lie is as uh, perhaps the most vicious and the most consequential uh, 
conspiracy that we've had uh, over the last you know, 50, 60 years in this country. Uh, it follows along birtherism. It follows along uh, everything, whether it's the John Birch Society, Satanic Panic, there, there's a litany of these. But here's how I would characterize it. You know, we talk about white privilege often, and, and people, I, I think, have started to get their heads around that over the last couple of years. And if I say white Christian privilege, one of the things that I think about is, is white Christians in this country, not only often, not, not all Christians and not, and not all people, but they often think of themselves as having a kind of privilege when it comes to representation. We have 45 presidents. We are 46 now in, the, in office. They've all been Christian. Uh, there's 88% of our Congress is Christian in some way. And so there's this sense in which that it kind of goes unsaid that if I'm a Christian in this country, I'm going to sort of just have a, a benefit of the doubt. We're going to pray before the football game to my God. My Pledge of Allegiance says under God in a way that honors my monotheism. But let me stretch it a little bit. What is more privileged than getting to side what is real and true and actual? Mm. If I if I just show up in the public square and I say, I hear all your voices, all of you newcomers from other countries, all of you mixed race people, all of you queer folks. And guess what? I'm the one who has the right to determine in this public square what is real, what is true, and what is actual. And you're going to abide by that, whether you like it or not. Mm. That is the ultimate privilege. And that is the big lie. It says, it's it. there's no evidence that you can show me that will convince me otherwise, because I feel this. I feel it in my heart. I feel it in my soul. And therefore, it must be true. And because of who I am, I have the privilege to do that. And everyone else better get in line, or I will show up at the Capitol. And I'll tear it down if I need to. Oh, man. And this is this is stressing me out, too, because we are on the verge of an election in a, like a week and a half. And then another one like two in two years. And, you know, I, there's a section in your book, page 23. It says the script reads like this. We have a short time to save the country if we don't treat this as a red alert situation and devote all our time and energy to this campaign. The country will be destroyed by Marxists and socialists. And then you're right, political opponents become demons. And so every single election now is this total collective national trauma that, you know, our election cycles go on for 14, 15, 18 months. So it's just this drug out permanent like trauma, it's abuse. And so I, here we are on the precipice of a new election. And I dare I ask your sentiments uh, to f in the forecast of the future, like because I know the book does some forecasting. I'm like wondering, how are you feeling about this after having immersed yourself so much in these topics while writing this book? How are you feeling about the future? Because for me, I'm having a hard time. Yeah, I, oh, I, under I totally understand why you would. And so in the passage you talked about, I'm trying to explain how, you know, Christian nationalists think they really think that, you know, if if we don't save the country, the quote unquote Marxists and socialists and, and godless heathens will take over. Um, and one of the things that I, I recently uh, learned and, and talked about with my colleague, Lucas Kwong, who's, who's making a spinoff series for, uh, for us at Straight White American Jesus called Monster in the Mirror. You know, he's looking at monsters uh, from the 19th century, Dracula and uh, War of the Worlds. And, and he's basically saying that the 19th century Britain was 
worried about their crumbling white Christian empire. And so they invented monsters to blame it all on. And it kind of sounds familiar, right? Everybody. All right. here's Here's your podcast series. Right. So, you know, the podcast series is really cool. But one of the things he said to me is like, look, if you turn your political opponent into a monster, you not only can't, but you shouldn't respect them, listen to them, dialogue with them, compromise with them. By if you are dealing with a monster, the idea that you would put your hand out and say, can we talk about this is the last thing you would ever imagine to do. So if you turn Hillary Clinton, as Alex Jones did, into an actual demon and say she smells like sulfur, if you say that people who are part of the cabal of Illuminati are serpents and have serpent DNA, if you think of people from Asia as a horde and having, you know, this tendencies to feed off of the the flesh of others, whatever may be, there's no sense in respecting or talking or listening or dialoguing or compromising. It's all just destroy the monster. So I think that helps us understand what one side of the country is thinking. And what that forces the other side into is to say, you think I'm a monster. So when I try to, to put my hand out and compromise, talk, dialogue, have some kind of good faith, I run into Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert screaming nonsense about, uh, you know, demons and lasers and and uh, and everything else under the sun. And it's like what this forces me into is I have to look at these elections as make or break because you're willing to burn the house down like you literally almost did on the sixth in order to get what you want here. So all that to say, what am I for? Uh, you know. I think anything could happen in these midterms. And I and I'm I am not going to be somebody who makes some prediction and acts like he knows stuff. I think if, if you run into that person in 2022, uh, you should consider them <laughs> soft, sophomoric and dangerous because we don't know. Um, what I do think will happen is uh, these are just very general themes about uh about things, is no matter who wins and who loses, when you see a a GOP candidate uh, not uh, not be victorious, the claims of election fraud will just be ever-present. They are now a standard part of our culture uh, politically, and that is really, really dangerous. If we get Carrie Lake in Arizona or Doug Mastriano in, uh, in Pennsylvania, a uh, couple of other races, we have a situation where we have governors who may not be willing to certify a Democratic uh, you know, winner uh, in their state when it comes to 2024, right? Um, when it comes to the House, if the Republicans win and they have a majority, I think they're very serious about just saying, we'll just, we'll let the credit, the good credit of this country go. We won't raise the debt limit because you know what? Y'all are demons. And I mean, think about that mindset. If I'm staring down the face of a dragon and it's like, hey, your your credit score might down, might go down. And you're like, who the hell cares? I got to get rid of the demon. I got to get rid of the dragon, right? So yeah, screw it. I'm not going to raise the debt limit. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to talk to these Democrats over here. Do I think that's justified in calling the Democrats a demon? By no means. But that's where the Republican Party is now. That, that I mean, it's not the fringe part. It's, it's, it's the absolute power holders and stakeholders in that party and that is where we're at. So I'm not going to make any prognostications about any races or anything else, but those are the things I'm watching uh, thematically. And that ties into the book. You have a chapter called Extremism is a Virtue. 
So this is like a feature now, not a bug. It's not an accident. It is an extraordinarily specific set of choices that you mentioned of like being a part of halting the expansion of civil rights and preventing mainstreaming of religious, racial, sexual, and ethnic minority rights is and you know it so it's cultural history and very political and it's all about grabbing power oh it's so bleak i don't even have a question now i'm just like <laughs> well and you know extremism as a virtue is, is a 1964 quote from barry goldwater who said that when he won the gop nomination for president and was speaking in night at, at in san francisco of all places so i guess that's my point right is like this has been building since then you know what I mean? It's not just Trump. It's not just uh, McCarthy. It's not just uh, Mitch McConnell. It's been building since then. Uh, the, the idea that if you're an extremist, that's good. If you're a moderate, that's bad. Right. Well, you know, what's really interesting about this, too. I think about this a lot, about how I have extraordinary qualms with so many of the decisions and policies of the Democratic Party, and I will openly, happily critique them so often and that the major difference is is that the other side seems often completely incapable of critiquing minor things do you know what i mean like i'm totally happy to critique like the people that i tend to agree with more i will critique everyone equally as much as i possibly can but one side seems completely incapable of critiquing their own side and that scares me a lot so liz cheney's the best example right yeah so liz cheney did not change her position on voting rights on immigration on uh government spending on health care none of that just changed her position on one thing after j6 she's no longer with trump and guess what happened to her She's out of the Republican Party, essentially. I mean, they censored her in her own state. And so to me, that speaks to your point, is that if you have a party where loyalty to a figure, not policy, not position, is, is the way to gain entrance or exit, you're really far down the road towards something that in the 30s or the 40s or other times we, we would have called fascism, totalitarianism. Uh, authoritarianism I and mean, we can we can do all the definitions and i'll have all the discussions and i know the scholars out there have all their the examples that they would prefer to use i'm just saying the point for me is if the only way to get in or out of the party is to show loyalty to the leader you're in a bad way yeah you know and you mentioned the uh the possibility that there could become governors in this country that don't certify elections when it comes to the other party being legitimately victorious and we have a lot of other things that I see being tied to this as well, especially like relation to killing democracy, such as the way that we gerrymander voting districts, disenfranchise numerous groups, and the way that the legislative branch didn't even convict the former president during the second impeachment, ban him from running for office again. And like, are there any other like anti-democracy forces at work here that I am overlooking with regards to Christian nationalism and the book in general? I think there's a lot. I think there's so many. So I think one of the things that we've highlighted in our show and that people should really be aware of is the, the independent state legislature theory. And so it's the idea that the state legislature is the ultimate decider of the electoral votes for any one state. So let's just take Arizona. There, there Under this theory, the, the Arizonans, the people of Arizona could vote uh, in the 2024 presidential election 
and say 60% Democrat, 40% Republican. And so that goes to Biden or whoever is the, the Democratic nominee. So he gets the electoral votes. She gets the electoral votes for uh, for Arizona. Well, the independent state legislature theory says, well, hold on. It's actually the state legislatures who have the, the final say. And if they think that there's a reason not to certify those results and those electoral votes and that they should go to the other person because of voting irregularities, because of issues with procedure, because of whatever, then they are uh, able to send their electoral votes for Arizona to whoever they feel like. And it, they're not even beholden to the state Supreme Court. So even if, if they decide to do that and the Arizona state Supreme Court gets an appeal and they're like, hold on, hold on there, uh, not, that's not happening. The, the, under this theory, the Supreme Court of that, of that state has no jurisdiction. This is gaining traction. And uh, the Supreme Court is actually next term going to hear this and, so, uh, and, and, and uh, try a case on this. So all that to say, that would make it almost near impossible to have a democracy if a set of state legislatures could decide who became president. There's, there's more examples, but that one sticks out to me. This is an extraordinarily important period in history, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I know we could say that about every, um, you know, I, I think history is full of extraordinarily important moments and, and for, and, and depends on who you're asking that of, right? Sure. I think what's, what's really extraordinary about right now is that the decisions and the events seem to apply to everyone in the country. Um, it's, and, and you know what I mean? So we could talk about the sixties or seventies or eighties, and those were extraordinary times for so many Americans, but there's so many Americans for whom they weren't and, and they, their lives felt like they were pretty static right now. It feels as if this reaches to every corner and every nook and every cranny of the American populace. And I think that's why, uh, we're in such a place now. It, it, I think it's extraordinary too. There's just another reason is that there's a very real chance, and I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, that American democracy slips into what is not really a democracy. And I think that uh, is why this all feels so anxiety producing at all times. Ugh. Well, Brad, what is uh, what is next for you? You know, I know you, I know the book release is coming up. Um, what are your what are your plans to continue informing and working with the public on making everybody aware of these kinds of things? What do you got in the pipeline? Well, I, you know, for me, week in and week out, the goal is to say, how can we shine a spotlight on these things so that more and more people understand the situation we're in and why? And if we can do that, uh, perhaps we can uh, be on a train that helps persuade and activate people to realize uh, what is at stake. Uh, in in elections, what's at stake in our culture, what's at stake uh, in general. So I think that's that's really a, number one that's always on my mind. That's why I, I do what I do. That's why I get up in the morning. That's why I, I mean, I get up in the morning for a lot of reasons, but that's, a, that's, that's one. And that's why I wrote this book. Um, I think on the other hand, uh, there's, there's a plan for us to really expand what we're doing at Straight Outdoor white American Jesus into a number of, of various podcast spinoffs that uh, look at things from a different angle um, and provide people um, content that they can use uh, in various ways, including educationally and pedagogically. So uh, I mentioned Monster in the Mirror. So Lucas Kwong's creating this great series, and he's basically providing you, if you teach literature, if you teach English literature, if you teach Victorian literature, he's giving you six hours of content that is 
academically informed by an expert, but it's filled with dramatic readings by voice actors, sound effects. Love this. Original music. And you get all the Dracula, all the War of the Worlds, all of the monsters of the 19th century. But then he does this thing where he's like, hey, you know when so-and-so talks about blood-sucking cabals of elites and they do so through George Soros? It sounds like anti-Semitism in the United States, right? It also sounds like Dracula. And he all of a sudden you're brought forward and you're like, holy moly. To me, that's something you can assign. You can put that on your syllabus if you're teaching 12th grade or intro to intro to lit or a Victorian seminar uh, in college. And to me, that's pretty exciting, right? Because like if you're a student, wow, voice actor, sound design. I got yeah. a trend, I can transcript, I can read it if I need to. We can talk about it in class. That's pretty cool. So that's kind of on the on the horizon for us. Amazing. Well, um, the book Preparing for War comes out January. What's the date? Third? January 3rd, 2023. So maybe you're listening to this before that. Maybe you're listening to it after. So if it's before, definitely go and scope it out for pre-order. If it's afterwards, go and find it anywhere you possibly can. Uh, it's fabulous. I'm I'm loving it. And I'm wondering if you can just tell people where they can find you if they want to follow along with everything you do in the future. Yeah, so I'll just give one plug for pre-order. So there's a book called <laughs> The Case for Christian Nationalism, okay? And this book is basically laying out a, a white ethno-nationalist argument for, huh. uh, in Christian nationalist terms. So it uses the words of Aquinas and Calvin, but it basically says that if you're a white American, you should love people like you more than others. And that comes, mm. from, God, that comes from God. That book is like, depending on what day you look, like in the top thousand on Amazon. And if you know anything about Amazon, there's like 20 million books on there. So if you're in the top thousand, uh, you're like in the top 001%. All that to say, <laughs> that's what we're up against. So if, if if you order a book like mine or any other on, on Christian nationalism, it helps to kind of uh, offset just that enormous tide. So anyway, you can find me at Twitter, Bradley Onishi. You can find my show at Straight White JC. Uh, we publish three times a week. And so we're, we're always just, we got new content all the time and uh, various folks uh, coming on the show to talk about these issues. And uh that's the best place. You can go to bradonishi.com as well and find all my info. Amazing. Dr. Bradley Onishi, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your new book, Preparing for War. It's been a real pleasure and I have loved this conversation. Even when it's been challenging for me, I have really enjoyed our time together today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here.